Well, this morning we're going to end a, a series that we've called Life Together. And today is really the big so what of all of it. So uh, you didn't know this, but this has been like a 16 week long sermon. So today is the conclusion. Um, and the, this morning we're going to look at um, multiplication, spiritual transformation. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. So if you want to turn there, we'll be there in just a moment. If you're a worshiper in training, one of our children, and are following along, our key words for you are multiply, grow, and conversion. <clears throat> now over the last... Uh, 15 weeks, we've looked at various aspects of this life together in the church. We've looked at three main headings, community, truth, and mission. And under each of those, we've had several things. We talked about the beautiful mess of our relationships together, that God has put us together in relationship, and it's beautiful, but it also gets very messy sometimes, and that is a good and right thing for us. We talked about our relationships in our families relationships between husbands and wives and children and their parents. We talked about the call from the Scriptures for us as Christians to be hospitable, to open our homes and to give our lives to hospitality as homes of refuge and evangelism. We talked about our small group ministry and the importance that we see in being plugged into smaller groups of people within the church and about accountability, our need for accountability to one another, that we are all accountable to each other, we are all accountable to God. As we looked at the heading of truth, we talked about the authority of God, the authority of the Scriptures in the life of a Christian, the authority of the church in the life of a believer, and the authority that we grant to one another in terms of accountability in our lives. We talked about the centrality of preaching in the church, the importance of the preached Word, about the relationship between the law of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We talked about worship, what we do here, what we do in our homes, in our family worship, and what we do in private worship, and why this is so important, and how it all comes together. We spoke on the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, the fourth commandment, and why we see it is important, and why we think it is commanded by God that we honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. We talked about our stewardship, and how we steward our time and our finances, and these things that God has given us for the advance of His kingdom. And over the last four weeks, we've talked about mission, participating in culture. How is it that we can be a countercultural people in the midst of a lost and dying world? We talked about restoration, seeing all things being made new in Christ Jesus. We talked about conversation. How do I engage my coworkers, my neighbors, my friends and family with the gospel? And over the last week, we enjoyed a missions conference over several days as we spoke about the global cause, seeing Christ proclaimed throughout all the world as He calls the elect from the nations to Himself, that He would be glorified. So today we're taking all those things and we're wrapping it all together and asking, how does God use all of these means, all of these things that we've talked about, for the purpose of fulfilling His promise to make a great nation from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. 
We talked about the Abrahamic covenant and how in that covenant he promised from Abraham to make an offspring who from that offspring would make a great nation. So how does God use these means to continue on in that covenant promise and bring this about for his purposes? To bring about new life through regeneration, to advance the church and to advance the kingdom, to expand the kingdom of Christ. In other words... How is God multiplying His work to bring about more and more spiritual transformation across the land? And how does the church itself experience spiritual transformation? How do we experience more of God in our individual lives? And how do we experience more of God in our community of faith? And how do we get to where we're seeing more and more lives transformed in our midst? That's what we desire, right? That's part of our mission statement. We exist to see transformed lives. This is something that we long for, something we celebrate in as we have already this morning. And this is at the crux of how the elders of Ephesus Church think and in what we do as a local church. We're asking these questions. Is it confessional? Does this align with what we say we believe? How is this going to work to build community? How does this fit into our mission? How does it fit into what we've said our mission is? So as we do anything, these are questions we're asking. And we wanted to focus on all these means that we believe God is using to build His church. To build His church spiritually, and by doing that spiritually... The implication of that is that numerically he will be building his church as well. And from that, we find what are these means and everything else gets shed so that our life together is focused, is intentional, and is meaningful. And that we don't have a lot of extra weight added on. So before we get into the text this morning, I want to give us two reminders from where we started this series. The first is this. In all that we've said, in all that we've done, we've not sought to say that what we do and the way that we do it is the way. We're saying this is our way, as we are convinced by the Scriptures, and we're simply seeking to be faithful to what we see in the Bible. And in that, we understand that as we live life out as believers in the church, there are some things that we are going to get wrong. That's why we hold to the great cry of the Reformation, Semper Reformanda, always reforming. We're always seeing what can be more and more in line with the Scriptures, and we're adjusting and making changes along the way. So, none of this is us versus them. So, if you have in mind that that is what's going on or that's what's being said, uh, I simply tell you that it is not. We are who we are according to the convictions that we believe are from the Bible and the things that we want to be faithful to that we can grow in gospel grace together in. So that's number one. And number two, we started all this by saying that it is not about gaining more knowledge. Our quest in all that we do is not simply about knowledge. Our concern, our focus, our desire is to see all of us growing in spiritual maturity. It's possible to have a lot of knowledge and be very immature. In fact, the Scriptures tell us that knowledge works to do what? To puff up. Maturity in Christ brings us to humility. 
makes us humble before God. So before we get to Matthew, I want to look where we did at the beginning of this series in Hebrews chapter 5. Beginning in verse 11, the writer of Hebrews writes, About this we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He goes on in chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So, is the writer of Hebrews telling us we don't need to focus on some of these more simple things that we would call simple things? No. He's not calling us to simply put away looking at and learning from them. He's calling us to mature in these things. Move away from immaturity into maturity. So the focus is not knowledge. It's that the people were not applying what they already knew. It's an application of that knowledge. He's saying you people should be commended as an example. But you're still on milk. You should be on meat. And so... He tells us, first, we need to be trained by constant practice. There must be spiritual discipline in our lives. And two, this will all happen if, verse 3 of chapter 6, if God permits, by the power of God, it comes about. So, our focus in all of this has been maturity, so that we can be and we can do that which God is pleased to use for spiritual transformation, to advance His kingdom and to multiply His church. And then we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Very familiar verse to most of us. I hope to look at it afresh this morning. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. 
Now, as you read through the gospel account of Matthew, you notice that in this passage, Jesus is all of a sudden making a very radical shift. In the gospels and all the gospels, Jesus is constantly talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. He says it over 80 times in the four gospel accounts. But now, all of a sudden, he's talking about building his church, the ecclesia. And he mentions church in the gospel accounts only twice. And both of them are in the book of Matthew. We see it here in Matthew 16. And we see it two chapters later in Matthew 18 as he talks about church discipline. So until now, the disciples are thinking in their minds, kingdom. The king is here. The kingdom is established. We are going about this thing. We're part of the nobility. This is our kingdom. There's a kingly reign now that has begun that Jesus is here. But what does Jesus tell them here? He says, I will build my church. There's a shift all of a sudden. So that's what we will look at. Ekklesia is the Greek word for church. It means a called out assembly. A called out group of people. And this people, the scriptures tell us, this people, this church will hold the keys to the kingdom of God. So Jesus' coming inaugurates the kingdom establishes a few things. First of all, Jesus' coming establishes the fact that He, in fact, is the King. Secondly, we see that His people will do His work as His ambassadors. We see that in 2 Corinthians 5, the passage I spoke of earlier this morning. That we are, as His people, ambassadors of Christ. God making His appeal through us. Be reconciled to God. This is our work. Therefore, as a result of that, that we have a king, we are working to advance his kingdom as his ambassadors, therefore the church holds the keys to the kingdom. We'll talk about what that means so we don't have a wrong idea about it. So we see in one way the kingdom of God has already been established. But we still know there's death and sin and rebellion And so, the kingdom is not yet fully realized. Often we speak of the already and the not yet. The king has already come. But your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is not yet fully realized. Already we live and serve under the reign and rule of Jesus Christ as our king. Amen? Sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning throughout all eternity forever and ever. But it is not yet fully consummated. We await the return of Christ and the final judgment of Christ, the resurrection of the dead and the new heavens and the new earth. And as we await that final consummation of the kingdom, we are called out to live as the church. To live with a specific purpose, to live on mission as ambassadors of Christ. So there's some big stuff here. Well, what does all of this mean? I want to look carefully at our text this morning. There's three things I want to point out in this passage. The first is this. We must, like Peter, recognize the absolute central place of Christ in the church and in the Christian life. Let's look again, verses 13 through 16. 
Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This proclamation is at the heart of all that we are and all that we do. All of it is in Christ Jesus. So in, this, in these verses, we see, uh, first and foremost, that Jesus is leaving Galilee and He is entering into the one, one of the most pagan, godless cities in their day and in their culture. Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea. What's the foundation of that word? Caesar. They worshipped Caesar, their God. And so Jesus enters into this pagan region and He asks the disciples who are there, who do these people say that I am? Who do they think that I am? Do we see any application here in our lives already? As we think, as believers, Christ is asking us, who do these people around you say that I am? Now, we have to give a little credit to the people, right? They recognize Jesus is at least a big deal on some level. If he's John the Baptist, if he's Elijah, or if he's Jeremiah, that is a big deal. Why? Because all three of them are already dead and gone. So they recognize on some level there's something special about this guy named Jesus. And there's a little credibility to what they're thinking in terms of him being Elijah. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5 says, Behold, I will send the prophet Elijah, who we know was John the Baptist. So they're not completely off base when they think this in terms of Jesus. This is very similar today, right? Some may hate Jesus. Some may take all that he has said and all that he has taught completely wrong, but at least, there is a recognition that Jesus is a big deal. (laughs) He's turned the world upside down and we see at least that's recognized. Why else? Why else the new atheism? Why else the great push and the great desire to convince the world that Jesus is dead? Because He's a big deal and they recognize it. But this is becoming less and less the case, right? Why? Because I would argue that in the American church, Jesus is becoming less and less of a big deal. Much of the church, not this local church and not any specific local church perhaps that maybe you're thinking of, but the church in general in America, we are all responsible Much of the church has gotten caught in a vicious cycle of our culture. And the more we minimize Jesus, the more the world minimizes Jesus. And so the church, in return, return, minimizes Jesus all the more to attract the world through other means. So Jesus is squeezed out and gimmicks and giveaways and productions and entertainment and all of these things become the main thing. And so when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? We may get a whole variety of different answers. 
Really, in the end, it is what one author has called Christless Christianity. It may be, in the end, that Jesus is no more than a sky fairy who gives me what I want and when I want it. and cares nothing about how I live, how I treat my neighbor, how I do this thing called church. And in the end, he just has to deal with it because he loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. Did you know that North America is the only inhabited continent in the world where the church is not growing? It's an amazing thought, isn't it? Because we talk so much about how we are a so-called Christian nation. But the church of America has been compromised and in many ways is very cowardly. But, hear this, but first, as Christians, we are called to love her and be faithful to her, regardless of where she's at. And two, we rejoice because we know how the book ends. Jesus is the hero and He is a big deal regardless of what our culture says and regardless of how much the church is compromised. He will reign and rule forever and ever, period. So as our culture continues to turn, we will be tested more and more. We'll be called hateful, we'll be called bigots, we'll be called intolerant, and on and on and on. And maybe you've experienced that already. It will become more difficult to be faithful to the gospel, but we must maintain the gospel. We must maintain biblical morality, and we must cry out, Jesus, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That must be our foundational confession. So the big question for us is, is Christ central in our lives? To the extent that in the face of persecution, in the face of compromise, in the face of temptation, that we say together, Christ is enough. Is He? Is that our claim? Is Christ enough? Do we have Christ-centered, Christ-saturated lives? Are we a Christ-centered and Christ-saturated church? Will we maintain the centrality of Christ if all around us gives way? We've talked about being effective, countercultural Christians. Engaging our culture, participating in our culture to the extent that we can. But we must think strategically. We must think contextually. We have to think about these things. But we must never lose the focus that the center is Jesus. So if what we are, if what we say, if what we do can exist or is possible without Jesus dying on the cross and being resurrected from the dead, we've lost the gospel and have bought the lie of moralism and self-help. We want everyone who comes in contact with us as believers to say their sole focus in life is saying and displaying that Jesus is great. So we can talk relationships, we can talk hospitality, accountability, stewardship, cultural engagement, all of these things we've talked about. But if they are void of the cross, it's useless babble. It's a failure. 
So the primary means of God multiplying His church and bringing about spiritual transformation is the proclamation of and the focus on the centrality of Jesus Christ in our lives as individuals and as the church, carried along by His Word. We are sanctified. We are made more and more holy and brought into obedience. And we are driven by the truth of God's Word and the centrality of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the church of Christ is the church of Christ. And God is pleased to, uh, to multiply it when the foundation is confessionally. Jesus is the Christ. Let's look at verses 17 and 18. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this passage is very controversial because the Roman Catholic Church has taken this to say that um, what Jesus is saying is that all the church is built on Peter. And so Peter was the first pope. Well, this is the only verse they have to affirm uh, the idea of the Pope, and so um, I would say quite, um, quite weak. There's nothing here granting infallibility to Peter. There's nothing here granting infallibility to a man who gets to interpret Scripture alongside coming up with decrees that are of the same authority as that which God has spoken through His apostles and prophets. And so this is certainly not what the Lord is saying of Peter. What Jesus is doing here is a word play with Peter's name. The Greek word rock is Petros. So it'd be like him calling him Rocky. So Peter is a representative of the disciples. And really, if you look at this, Jesus is saying, Who do you, plural, say that I am? So in good southern vernacular, who do y'all say that I am? Did I say it right? <laughs> who do all of you, any northern, who do youans say that I am? Who do yous guys say that I am? So he's speaking plural here. And we know from the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, that the church is built on the confession, the words, the, the writings that we have from the apostles and the prophets, not upon Peter himself. Peter is not the cornerstone of the church. Jesus is. Peter is not the sole key holder of the kingdom of God. The church is. Peter is a representative amongst the disciples. So this is why the church is crucial to the kingdom and the mission of God. We have, the Scriptures say, the keys to heaven, the power of binding and loosing, and the power and the authority of gospel proclamation. This is great power that the church holds. So Peter's confession of Christ brings Christ to reveal the plan of Christ, which is the church. Look at this very simple yet very profound statement. I will build my church. I and my. Very personal. This church belongs to Jesus. 
doesn't belong to you. doesn't belong to me. The church belongs to Jesus. And elsewhere in the Scriptures, we see that it is called His bride. I, personal, will. This is ongoing. This will happen. Not might, not maybe, but will. I will. Do what? Build. There's a progressive forward advance to what He is doing. It will happen. It is happening. My church, I will multiply. I will spiritually transform. I will bring together a called out people. I will build my church. So what do we do? Sit back and watch? No. We do all that we've talked about over the last 15 weeks. We preach, we serve, we pray, and we plan. And in doing so, we can expect results because Christ has said, I will build my church. Now we have to think of this in the context of where the disciples were in Matthew 16. Rome is very oppressive. The disciples are in a pagan city. And Jesus says... Oh, by the way, all of this persecution, all that you're enduring, all that is coming through the oppression, I will build my church. We need to hear this. We need to hear this. We are inundated by gospelless morality, worldliness and paganism, Christless Christianity. Everything except what we're doing has the appearance of success sometimes, right? And so our desire sometimes, our heart is calling out to compromise. If everything around us looks successful except for what we're doing, that gets very discouraging. Even though we're striving to be what the Bible calls us to do and be. It's very easy to be discouraged. But He calls us to trust Him to trust Jesus, to trust the power of the gospel because He tells us, I will build my church. That's not all. He adds to this even more. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, many people misunderstand exactly what Jesus is saying here. The idea, the thought may be that the gates of hell are pushing in and the church is shrinking back and shrinking back. That we're to be in sort of this retreat mode. And that Jesus is going to appear at the right minute and take us away before we get crushed by the gates of hell. So as a result, and we've talked about this, we, uh, we get into retreat mode in our minds and in our hearts. And we do uh, things like build Christian theme parks and sporting leagues and uh, God tube on the Internet or whatever else because we need Christian things because the gates of hell are pressing in. They're pressing in. They're pressing in. We need to retreat, retreat, retreat. And this is the idea that we need to stand our ground because the gates of hell are coming and they're going to crush us. That's not what Jesus is saying. Gates are not an offensive weapon, are they? Jesus is saying the gates or the forces of hell or Hades will not prevail. Hades, the realm of the dead. So, talking about the world, about Satan and his work, about death in general. Gates 
a defensive mechanism to hold something back. So the forces of Hades will not and cannot hold back the advance of the Gospel. That's what Jesus is saying. The world will try, but it cannot do it. And it won't do it. A great example today is in China. There are more Christians in China worshiping right now than in all of America combined. And guess what? In the majority of China, it's illegal to be a Christian and to worship the one true and living God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And so the world, try as they might, will not prevail in holding back the advance of the Gospel. And in fact, it's said many times, the blood of the martyrs is the seedbed of the church. As persecution comes, as the world seeks to hold back the church, the gospel is advancing and advancing and advancing and knocking on the gates and pushing on the gates. They will not prevail against the church. That's incredibly hopeful in all that we do. So we have two motivations for everything that we've looked at over the last 15 weeks. First, the proclamation and centrality of Christ's supremacy. Everything we do needs to be guided by the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we must recognize that Christ will be successful. Christ will fulfill His promises. Christ will redeem from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. Christ will heal every hurt and wipe away every tear. Therefore, we can stop retreating and bemoaning and being fearful and hiding and start living every day on mission because Christ will be successful. And the gates of hell, try as they might, will not hold back the advance of the church. That's victory. But the problem is that so often as believers, we simply see the church as a bearable and tolerable necessity instead of the bride of Christ for whom Jesus died, that we love and we give our lives to that we want to know, that we want to work in and with and through to progress the gospel and the advance of the kingdom. Because we, along with many around us, are simply inoculated with Jesus. We've got just enough of Jesus to think that we know Him and know who He is and what He's doing. So we have a lot of religion, but not a lot of Jesus. And so what happens is the world picks up on that culture that we've created. Picks up on our shopping and hopping around, thrill-seeking and complaining, and asks, what's the point? Why do I voluntarily want to put myself in the midst of a people who are going to complain and hop and this and that? I want to suggest instead for all of us, Because of Christ's supremacy, because of Christ's promise to build the church, the world should see us digging in and growing deeper and growing in our commitment and maturing and relentlessly pursuing the gospel all around us. A commitment to engage our neighbors and to love them because it's more important than my personal preferences and it's more important than my personal calendar. 
So let me ask all of us. I'm not picking on you. If you're convicted by this, it's the Holy Spirit. Is your focus on all that you can find wrong with the church? Do you simply participate in the life of the church because you know you need to tolerate it and because you're supposed to? Do you intentionally pursue spiritual maturity, relationships with other believers, and opportunities to serve on mission? Are you in the middle of the game or are you sitting on the bench watching? Is Peter's confession your confession? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We are armed with the gospel. We are armed with the promise that Christ is building His church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Why should we sit on the bench? We have a great hope. We have a great victory in store. Third, the church is God's means of advancing His kingdom when the church is on mission. Verses 19 and 20. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that He was the Christ. The church has the keys to the kingdom. The church is not the kingdom, but it's created by the kingdom and for the kingdom. Therefore, we must be kingdom focused. And when we are, we will be on mission. Why is it that churches aren't planning new churches? Why is it that churches aren't serving the poor and loving their neighbors and sending and being sent for the spread of the gospel through Jesus Christ, just as our mission statement says? Why is it that churches aren't doing these things? Because the focus is more on ourselves than it is on the kingdom. Churches don't plant new churches because they're selfish. They want everyone to come and be a part of what we're doing here. Well, why not come and be a part of what we're doing out there? We have a part in that. We have a responsibility in that. Statistics show that God does a great work in that as well. Our focus needs to be on the kingdom. And your elders here, we desperately want to mature in all of this. We want you to come along with us as we move more and more toward the kingdom focus, gospel advancement, to break through the gates of hell and to rescue the walking dead. And without doing this, we will die. We will die. So what does all this look like practically? How do we advance the kingdom on mission? The bigger question is, how is God pleased to multiply His church to bring about spiritual transformation in the lives of His people and in the life of the church? It's the very things we've talked about. A commitment to the truth of God, to the authority of His Word, to the supremacy of Christ. A genuine, committed, sacrificial, honest Christian community. And day-to-day mission in our neighborhoods and at our jobs and where we do our hobbies and where we shop and in sending and being sent for the spread of the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. It's all of these elements that we've been talking about for the last 15 weeks and they all add up to this. 
and we can't remove any of it or we lose. The church doesn't lose, but we locally, we lose. These must be our priorities as a local body. When the world looks into the church, not just here and now, but into the lives of the people of God, they should get a glimpse of what the kingdom looks like, right? In our relationships, our relationships to one another, our relationship to our spouse, our relationship to our children, our relationship to our enemies. As the world looks in, they should see and they should hear language of reconciliation and love and genuine concern for one another. They should see a variety of ethnicity coming together to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ and He has brought us together from all walks of life and all cultures, from all sorts of peoples to bring us together and unite our hearts as brothers and sisters to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. They should see what we value, gospel things and not worldly things. But can we be honest about this? This is not often what the world sees, right? A recent poll is taken that says 85% of non-believers say that the church is full of hypocrites, more concerned about organized religion than they are with serving God and loving His people. So, a few responses to that. First of all, yeah, we're hypocrites, that's why we're here. We need Jesus. And one more hypocrite is welcome to join us. At least we're honest about it. Second of all, is that this will be said because of the stumbling block of the cross. And we read that earlier in First Peter, right? But, where we need to be concerned is, are people stumbling over the cross? Or are they stumbling over us as individual Christians? And as a local body of Christ? That's a difficult question that we all have to ask ourselves. We need to recognize and to see ourselves as God's means of multiplication because we hold the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That is powerful. We can't save people, but we can be faithful to what God calls us to be. Armed with the promise that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we will be God's means to bring about spiritual transformation. So here's the question for all of us. Do you love Christ's church? More specifically, if you're a member here, do you love this church? You cannot love Jesus and hate His wife. Look, we're not all going to get this perfect, right? We're going to mess up. You're going to get hurt. I've said it before. You will be failed. I may hurt you. I may fail you. It's going to happen. You may not like all of our music. You may not like that we don't do certain things and that we do certain other things. You may not have all of your preferences met right here. But if you're in covenant community, this is your church. 
And I have to ask all of us, do we really think, myself included, do we really think that working through life with other sinners somewhere else is going to be any easier? We may not have the same issues, but we all have issues. Don't fall in love with another church. Fall in love with this church, if you're a member here. All of our warts included. And we need to wrestle and work and press on with this church. Because that's what Christ has called us to. And He will prevail. So consider this in closing. Seven questions. I'm just going to ask them for all of us to think through. One, is Christ supreme in my life? And am I doing all that I can to see that He maintains supremacy in my local church? Two, am I pursuing gospel maturity or simply religious goods and services and experiences? Three, do I love this church and desire to see her healthy and on mission? Or do I simply tolerate her while I lust after another one? Four, am I engaging in the mission or am I just a consumer? Five, do I long to see the kingdom advanced and the gospel proclaimed in our community and the uttermost parts of the world? Six, do I really believe and live like I believe that Jesus is building His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? And seven, if so, what am I going to do about it? Am I going to watch or am I going to engage? We have a great God who has given us a great promise. And I pray with all of my heart that all that we've discussed will be things that we mature in, things that we advance in. Our desire is not to come here and just do some religious things and go home and be done with it. Our desire is to be the people of God in the world that God has created us to be in and working out all of this in for His glory and for the joy of His people, that we could see spiritual transformation in the lives of others. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful, so grateful that You've given us one another. I pray, Father, that that is true for each and every person in here. Members and not, I pray, God, that all of us as Christians, are grateful that we have brothers and sisters in this community, in this place, as we gather together right now. Father, let us not have hearts that put us against our brothers and sisters. Help us to be united in this great call of the church to advance the kingdom to advance the gospel because we have the great promise that you will prevail in the end. And we pray, God, we pray that you would be prevailing in our midst and that we would see it and that we would believe it and that we would be busy about doing the work of the gospel because of your great promise. 
Father, we are so thankful to see new spiritual life in our midst. We pray for more of that. We pray that you help us to be faithful to raise up our children in Christ, in the church. That you would be pleased to ignite all the kindling we put around them to grant them new life in Jesus. We pray, God, that as we engage in our jobs, in our, in our uh, stores, and in where we do our hobbies and in our neighborhoods, that you would be pleased to bring about new life into these people with whom we engage. We pray, God, that in all of this, you would be faithful to remind us of your promise from your word that you will do all that you do because Christ is supreme and is worthy of worship and because you desire to see your church advance to the uttermost parts of the world, that you will have a beautiful bride to present to your son at the wedding feast. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for that promise. Help us to be a people who are on mission, living in grace-filled gospel community with one another, committed to the truth and driven by the supremacy of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.